Well, it's time for the tactics meeting. I'm your host, Dan Smiley, and I'll be your planning section chief as we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. Today for episode 30, we'll be talking about volunteers, and I have a special guest from the Washington State Department of Ecology to help take us through that complicated subject. I'm really excited to unpack all of this information, so let's go ahead and get started. I'm here with Nee Irwin, the statewide resource section manager with the Washington State Department of Ecology. We're gonna be talking about Washington State's policy for the use of volunteers. Nee, welcome to the program. Thanks, Dan, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. We've been talking about doing this particular episode for a, a while, and we've been focusing lately on doing uh, additional uh, work in drills exercising volunteers so i think this is is timely but before we get started on that uh can you tell me what is the statewide resource section manager what do you do <laughs> a little bit of everything um so the statewide so there's four sections within the department of ecology's um uh program so the spills prevention preparedness and response program is uh, one of 10 um, environmental programs within under ecology. So my section really is the section that supports, we have all the support function. Um, so all of the research and analysis, IT management of our data systems, all of the sort of cross programmatic um, planning that occurs uh, for the program is done under, under my section. That's like our program planning, our strategic planning, uh, performance metrics, um, training, um, and uh, investigations and enforcement um, um, activities are under my section. So really, we are the section of individual subject matter experts that really are supporting the, the other program areas of prevention, preparedness, and response. So we sort of keep the section going with, with our support of, of their activities. Okay, great. Well, today we're going to talk about volunteers, as I said, and, you know, volunteers have been a part of oil spill response for a, a long, long time. We kind of talk about it like it's new, but volunteers have been used to support wildlife uh, capture, rehabilitation, and, and release for, I don't know, 50 years. And so that's not new, but Washington State has policies that are relatively new uh, surrounding the use of volunteers. So what does Washington consider a volunteer to be? Yeah, so, I mean, we, you're right, you know, the use of volunteers or the question around the use of volunteers around oil spill has been around for a really long time. But I think it really came to be a focus in Washington um, after the lessons learned from the Cosby Busan um, incident in California. So there was a uh, incident specific uh, report that came out and it highlighted um, uh, a bunch of lessons learned and uh, volunteers and volunteer opportunities was one of those things that the state legislatures really wanted Washington to be able to provide. And so one of those things was putting together a system in place for how to manage volunteers. Um, 
We didn't get any resources to do it, but we gave, were given the mandate to do it. Um, and so what we came up with is a registration um, site. It's a portal and it's uh, the Oil Spills 101 site. Um, and that's where we ask volunteers to go and pre-register uh, to be a volunteer. And it's also a part of the Northwest Area Contingency Plan uh, policy uh, for the use of volunteers is that we wanna first, um, there's a priority for pre-registered and pre-trained volunteers um, to be used in an in event of an incident. Um, the, the Oil Schools 101 site is also a communication portal for us. And so when an, an incident happens, we um, go to that portal and we um, can survey the list of volunteers that are registered with us if there is an ask for a very particular skill set. Um, and we can you know, survey that. We usually send out a survey during a drill, actually, to the system just to test it, you know, to test whether or not the system is working as a communication tool. Um, and we have, uh, we'll ask people if an incident were to occur today, how, uh, you know, uh, when are you available? How long are you available for? Uh, we ask if there are specific skill sets that are needed. Um, you know, do you have any specialized training? Do you have any specialized certification? And we collect that information and we're able to really inform um, Unified Command um, of the possibility of the type of volunteer we may have and how many people we could get to come to an incident if they were to use volunteers. So that's, that's the sort of structure that we have in place in Washington now. So does every volunteer that wants to be involved in Washington need to go and register at the portal? What if you're already part of an, an organization? Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Island Oil Spill Association, IOSA, who's been in providing wildlife uh, rehabilitation volunteers for, for quite a while. If I'm part of that group, do I need to go to the portal? Um, you, you don't have to, you can register as an individual, but the portal uh, also allows um, organizations to register as a volunteer organization. And we actually really encourage them to do that. And we have a handful. Um, we've got um, the Audubon Society is registered with us. Uh, the uh, Red Cross is, is, is with us as well. Um, and so they have registered um, as an organization and um, you know, we, we really wanna leverage organizations, uh, volunteer organizations that can really help us with volunteers. Um, you know, if you're a registered organization, we have one, one number to call and we're able to um, leverage all of your volunteers who might be interested. We may use you and your staff um, you know, in, the, in helping us, for example, intake volunteers. Um, set up training sites or to help us manage and supervise volunteers. So um, if you're a, an organization out there that have um, a group of people who might be interested in, in oil spills, we certainly have done um, uh, workshops with your organization to kind of tell us, tell you what we do and what we're looking for. Um, and, you know, we talk about what 
during an incident, um, how you're possibly called out or how you may be contacted. Um, and so, yes, as an organization, we really, we hope that you'll come in and register with us. So is it easier for me as an individual to volunteer by being associated with an existing organization than to volunteer as an individual from the website or does it not matter? It doesn't really matter. I think it, it depends on the level of involvement that you wanna have um, interacting on oil spill issues. So um, we use the portal, we use the oil spills one-on-one portal to communicate to all of our registered um, uh, individuals to uh, talk about uh, training opportunities that come up. And so, or, you know, the latest information on on some particular topic around oil spills. So we use that. So if you're a part of, say, an affiliated one, the email goes to the affiliated email. And that person, of course, that organization would then, you know, spread the word or, you know, that. But you would get it directly if you were there as an individual. It just gives you a little bit more um, uh, information if that's what you want. But if you're just kind of registered and you'll get called when your organization gets called, that's okay too. We've all seen the images, or at least most of us, I think, have of people in their flip-flops scooping oil into Home Depot buckets down on the California beaches during the Refugia oil spill. Hey, people want to clean up oil. Can we let them do that in Washington? What are volunteers allowed to do under the Northwest Area Contingency Plan? Yeah, so, you know, currently in the area plan, um, there is uh, policies that and guidance um, that is uh, where uh, volunteers will not um, have direct contact with oil. Um, you know, volunteers are always supplementing professional resources. And there's just a lot of liability issues around that. And of course, health and training, um, the professionals train up to, to handle oil. Um, and there, there isn't any in-time training that will help you with that. So um, we, uh, so the policy is very clear about non-contact, um, no contact with oil for our volunteers. There's a number of activities as a volunteer you could possibly use for. The more specialized ones will likely require you to have a special training, um, maybe even specialized uh, um, licenses. Um, and if that's the case, you may end up being hired by, for example, if it was an, a wildlife uh, provider, once you're hired um, as an employee and you get trained or whatever else you're going to do with that organization, you no longer are a volunteer. So that, um, that oversight is, is now with the company that you're contracted with. Um, but, but, you know, if you're not contracted, um, other activities, you know, they're not glamorous. Um, so, and it's hard because old school work is hard. Um, you know, you may be uh, asked to be a part of a call center. Um, during an oil spill, there's going to be a lot of questions from the public, the media, and everybody else. Um, we may set up something called a joint information center, and uh, we may need people to, um, you know, um, be there to um, handle those calls. Um, the Wildlife Center may even have a need for volunteers to help answer uh, phone calls of reported oil spill, um, oil wildlife. And so that's a possibility as well. 
So those kinds of activities are the ones that are just really keeping volunteers away from, from contact with oil. So those are some activities, you know, that I can speak to today. Well, the area plan lists a few. It talks about pre-cleaning beaches. What does that mean? What do, when I ask somebody to pre-clean a beach, it's not even dirty yet, Nee. <laughs> well, we don't, you know, I mean, there's, there's, Pre-cleaning, you know, are, are we putting up, um, you know, is it maybe walking the beach and identifying, you know, um, oiled areas and things like that? I don't know that we are clear necessarily about what pre-cleaning a beach looks like. It's probably dependent. I don't, I don't think that we would have volunteers out there with scrubbers or hoses or, you know, anything like that. But um, you know, we definitely have some existing organizations that are out there, our beach watchers. Um, they're out there spotting for oil. They, you know, spot other things as well. And so those kinds of activities happen, you know, even before an oil spill too. So um, those are the kinds of activities if people have an interest in, in, you know, actually looking for oil to help us spot them. Um, there are certainly organizations like Beach Watchers or even the Audubon Society that have training specifically for um, the type of data, collecting some data, environmental data or species and you know data that can be helpful in an oil spill too. So a lot of different kinds of activities can happen to try and not have volunteers touch oil though. That's pretty clear. But it what kind of training does the state provide, if any, for people who want to become part of the volunteer core? So we have um, and have been conducting um, a Haswapper refresher course. Um, and in the past, we used to do it in person twice a year. Um, and um, it's, it's been in collaboration with the Coast Guard um, ecology, Department of Fish and Wildlife, as well as um, Focus Wildlife. And so we've put on this training um, to, um, to kind of give people that certification. Um, and it's very specific to oil wildlife uh, volunteers. And so the examples and the things that we talk about, the hazards and all of that is focused on what you would potentially encounter if you were a volunteer um, dealing with oil wildlife. So we provide that and certainly we've uh, collaborated with other uh, groups to um, put on volunteer um, information and training for example, local officials. What can they expect um, to um, you know, um, understand when an oil spill happens in their community? Um, what's their role? Um, what can they ask for? What can they do? Um, and so that's been kind of the extent of our resources at this point um, to put on those, those uh, uh, trainings. We have been asked to come and present um, as subject matter experts um, with organizations, volunteer organizations that put on training um, for their own um, volunteers. So we've participated in that a number of times, but um, we didn't get to do that last year, of course, um, but we're offering the Haswapper uh, training for our volunteers um, this year, coming up in December. Um, it'll be a virtual one. There'll be a kind of a hybrid of, of some learning uh, via videos um, and then a live um, 
a webinar on one day. So um, and more information to come on that. You have a date for that set up? We do. So it'll be December 11th. I think that's a Saturday um, is the live uh, portion um, of it. And then um, there are two weeks prior, we'll be sending out an email to all of our registered volunteers to give them a link to all of the videos and the learning that they'll um, have to do prior to that day. So if I'm a plan holder and I have an oil spill event, what should I as the incident commander be thinking about with volunteers? Am I going to turn this whole issue over to the state of Washington and you're going to manage it for me and all I need to do is uh, provide some tasking or do I need to provide a volunteer coordinator? What do I as a plan holder need to do? So as, as a plan holder, you are required to have in place a process for that. Um, and so how we're playing it now in drills, I think that's kind of the best way to describe it is, is you know, as, as an incident commander, you should be thinking proactively. You may not need any volunteers in the early hours, but you need to be thinking about three, five days from, from now. A big enough incident we're going to be at it for a little while. And so you should be tasking the liaison unit to be assessing um, the need for volunteers. And there is a, uh, you know, sort of a task for them. And so they know that they are going to, uh, first and foremost, communicate about volunteers. So we're instantly going to put out that message. That's what you can expect that we're going to put out a message in the first press release or um, any sort of social media um, postings that we do about the incident. Volunteers are not needed at this time, but please go and register at the Old Schools 101 site um, and you'll, you'll get more information about that if there is a need for volunteers. So we immediately put that out there so that people know where to go if they have an interest to volunteer. And then liaison will go around and ask all of the sections to be thinking about where they may need volunteers and, um, and get kind of that assessment. And then they make a recommendation to Unified Command for the use of volunteers. So for example, they may talk to um, the JIC and the JIC is asking for to set up a call center and they'll need volunteers. Uh, the wildlife branch may have a need for some very specialized skilled volunteers in those early hours to help them manage um, the uh, rehab centers. So they may have a request there. Um, Long-term, they may need people to, uh, uh, to man the uh, call center for all wildlife spotting or observations. Um, so there's some opportunities there. Um, liaison themselves may want to have um, you know, storefronts in communities and uh, open houses and things like that, there could be volunteers that could help us with that. So the, the liaison unit would um, make the recommendation to Unified Command. And if Unified Command feels like it is a priority, then they actually would task the planning unit um, to um, stand up a volunteer coordination unit. And then all of the sort of planning and intaking and the logistics around that would happen within this volunteer unit. So basically a little 
whole human resources department within the planning section. Yes. Right. Hire, hiring, vetting. I don't, I'm not sure I want volunteers answering a call center line. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure they're going to give out my message. Well, I mean, you know, you have to have training for them to do that. You have to have talking points for them. And it's, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that's a part of, that's a part of this information. And maybe the only thing they do is take down the name and phone number and get back to, to people with, with information. But um, it can, I mean, as you know, you know, a lot of people are going to be calling, asking for a lot of questions. And um, I think we are not uh, resourced in that way right now in the state or even I think in, in, you know, even with the plan holders, we couldn't, I just don't think that a big enough incident we could do without volunteers in some way. So you often play the role in drills of the liaison officer and work closely with the public information officer and the joint information center. Is that, do you see, uh, liaison as using volunteers and have you developed even a cursory plan for that yourself? Yeah, we have. I mean, we've, we've put together um, plans for how we, we think we might use volunteers. And I think in, in um, a very uh, real incident uh, in Mosier, um, Oregon, the, the derailment there, um, one of the ways that liaison used volunteers was to communicate to the community there about um, their use of water because the, uh, the incident took out um, their uh, waste management system for several days. Um, and in that community, you know, I mean, speaking a little bit here about knowing your audience and how you communicate with them, the community of Mosier wasn't on Twitter, you know, they weren't on social media. How they got their information was through their senior citizen center. And so the city planner happened to be part of liaison, which is a great resource, a plug for always getting the local person involved. Um, you know, she was able to say, you know what, why don't we gather people um, in the community that will volunteer to go door to door? And that's what they did. They got a group of people that showed up um, at the command post. Uh, we gave them some information, some flyers, and they went door to door to their neighbors and um, let them know not to use their water for flushing and where to go to get drinking water and, and all of that. So that was a real life example of how we were able to use volunteers to do that work to help us communicate to the community that was impacted. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think a part of the uh, liaison plan is to figure out how to get into the communities. And we know that there's benefit to an individual seeing someone that they trust within their community, especially community leaders, um, and uh, having them be kind of our ambassador to uh, the response. Oh, great use of volunteers. Yeah, we saw during, during this uh, vaccination drive for the pandemic, huge numbers of volunteers being used. Good friend of mine volunteered at one of the vaccination centers and he was the, he was, it was a drive up center and he was the greeter. He was the first person that someone driving up saw and kind of, 
you know, answered all of their initial questions and set the tone for the rest of their little journey through the circuit. And it makes such a huge difference. And you mentioned having like uh, uh, liaison storefronts and I, I kind of see the same kind of thing. The people who, who uh, greet those who are showing up for a, a public meeting and handing out whatever uh, 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 flyers or materials have been prepared for them and, and uh, ushering them to a, a seat like they've shown up to a wedding or something. Um, so great, great use of, for volunteers for something like that. I think we forget, and I do myself as an incident commander, that there's so many other things going on that don't actually put your hands on the oil, right? And there's, so there's yeah. a lot of opportunity for that. And I think we have to just tell the story that these are really important jobs. Yes, I know you want to come and clean up the oil, but this needs to be done too. Right, you're for every uh, like uh, you know, for every soldier that's out on the front line in World War II who actually shoots a bullet, there's like a thousand people forming the logistics support chain behind them to allow that to happen. And oil spill response is the the same way for everyone who's at the tip of the spear with their uh, hands in the oil there's a logistics support chain behind them that makes that work. Yeah, and then, and I think also too, as a plan holder company, the government, you know, we can't avoid volunteers. When people see their communities, their beaches, their favorite park, anything that is an impact to them, they are called to action. And without, um, you know, pre-planning, guidance, acknowledgement, you know, that something is happening um, and that we want you to get the right information. We want to put and steer your energy for action to a positive place. We have to do that. There's, we are going to always lose in the um, public arena of public perception and opinion if we don't address it. And of course, it's easier to just not deal with it. And it's hard. It's a lot of untrained people, a lot of people who have expectations that you can't meet, um, liability issues, all of those things. But we cannot avoid it. And um, it is just something that needs to be at the forefront of uh, you and an instant commander, your priority about messaging. Um, those early hours of messaging is so critical. We hear you, we know something has happened, we're on it, and we know that you have these concerns. And one of these things might be if you, there's an opportunity for you to help out. And I think that adds, that adds a great deal of, of uh, public trust. And uh, we're always looking to build that in a, in a disaster you know, moment. And um, so I, I think it is scary. And uh, we have a lot of work to do though. You know, I think we need to play it more robustly in drills and uh, play it to this, this sort of place of now standing up a unit, what does the logistics look like, you know? And uh, so there's, there's, been, there's been some chatter about, you know, maybe putting on a workshop for how to play those things a little bit more outside of the, 
the you know time constraint of a one day drill. So um, that's definitely on a wish list of ours too. So um, if there's a plan holder out there that's listening to this podcast that wants to help sponsor this, we welcome it. You know, so um, I think we just have to do it as a community. We're we're all here. So. Well, I'm in year three next year, and I only have two two items on the checklist to to knock off, which are which are really low hanging fruit. Maybe we'll do it. We being Wismic, maybe we'll do it. Um, I was thinking of doing radio comms too, which are volunteers, right? I'm 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 I've been digging through the section ninety five hundred one communications manual, and I'm thinking about how we might employ the amateur radio emergency services folks. So there's. We do kill two birds with one stone. So what do you consider to be some of the things that we still need to look at for, for volunteers? What's out there that is, has yet to really be addressed? I think for, for us, it's really about um, closing the gap or at least understanding more about the issue of liability. Um, you know, again, if, if a volunteer comes in as a volunteer and they become hired by the company or contractor or whatever else, they, they are covered under that provision of work, right? But it's, it's the liability around um, what to do for volunteers that say work in a command post. Um, who are they working for? I think there's not a clear understanding of that. There are a lot of gray areas, a lot of of um, technicalities around uh, around that that we really need to get to. And I, I think we haven't been able to really delve into that because of the complexity of liability. Um, and it's different in every county that we encounter. Um, some counties are very robust in their volunteer uh, planning and have um, actual volunteer coordinators. Um, other counties don't. Um, and so, you know, who, who really has um, the liability is on the take for the liability of a volunteer, a true volunteer that isn't a hired employee. Um, you know, what happens if they slip or trip or get injured while they're volunteering? So I feel like that is a uh, area that we, we need more clarity about. And I think once we get that clarity, we may be able to understand and provide for more opportunities for volunteers. You know, maybe the, the expanding of the list of activities that they can do um, will be more defined. Um, right now, I think we have uh, been very safe about that because of not understanding fully the liability issue. Um, but, you know, I, I just think that that's an, an area that we just haven't, haven't really uh, worked. And so I think if there was something more to do, in that area, it would be to really get some clarity around liability, liability around oil spill volunteers. We might think about doing uh, some specific task training, like the call center you're talking about. Maybe we we take uh, volunteers who are interested in that work and start to provide some training so they're ready for that kind of activity. You know, look at how we might roll these uh, amateur radio folks into the communications unit. It's called out in the area plan. I don't recall ever exercising it in 20 years. Yeah. 
I, I think another great one is to continue. We, we did this um, years ago, and I, I think we need to do it again, um, which I think the training for uh, local officials was really valuable. Um, and we went around to where I think we we're only the, the, the project that we did was really uh, North Puget Sound um, area. Um, but we should do that statewide and really help local officials understand their role in oil spills, how they get information, how they get involved, uh, you know, uh, what, what is even the jurisdictions that they have as well. Um, and so that, I, I, that would be a, a great next step, too, that we could do is, is to provide for that, um, to get some funding to, to do that training for local officials. It went very well. People really appreciated that. And, and it was eye-opening for them. And it helped them understand um, when it impacts their community, what they can do and, and uh, what is also done. You know, so I mean, that's sort of the first obstacle that we have to get past is this idea of there's nothing being done, right? This is an outrage and that stuff. So if we have those people who have constituents that they communicate with, if they're able to understand that there is at least a framework around how old schools are managed, um, that's that's a huge add, value add to our ability to communicate to communities during an incident. Well, you'd have to, it'd have to be ongoing, right? Because there's such a turnover in local yeah. officials, uh, especially yeah. elected officials. You, you virtually have to run the program annually or at least every other year to kind of keep it fresh. Or, or even to be able to do pre-recorded. I mean, I, I think FIMSA put on, um, they have a, a a, a great set of training videos that they, uh, you know, that was the premise of, of them doing that video. So I want to put a plug in for that. We have it linked at um, the Old Schools 101 site. They did two videos, one for um, tribes and one for elected officials to give them an overview of what Old School response is like. Um, but, you know, I, I think we could duplicate that in on a local level too. So that that's an opportunity there too. That sounds great. Well, as we close out, is there any last comments you want to make to uh, plan holders or would-be volunteers and maybe a final plug for what's going on at Ecology? Yeah, I mean, the, you know, for plan holders, um, you know, I, I hope that you're more open to when those drill designers come and talk to you about how to plan a drill is that you might want to consider uh, playing volunteers. Uh, we, of course, uh, you know, it's a priority for ecology. Um, we feel very strongly about, um, about ensuring that that um, gets played and um, liaison, part of the liaison sort of work activities is to work on um, volunteers. And so, you know, an openness to that, a, a sort of a willingness to try it would be great. Um, and for those who are listening who want to volunteer, uh, you know, it's hard because we hope it never happens. And your interests of like spending a Saturday in a classroom to learn about Hasloper is greatly appreciated. Um, and, you know, just keep keep at it and please sign up at the Oil Spills 101 site. You'll get a lot of great information about 
um, what's happening around um, oil spill issues in Washington state, and then um, training opportunities, whether with us or with other organizations are also listed there. So um, it's a really great place to um, just really understand um, what's happening in Washington state around um, oil movement and around, um, you know, how you can help out in your community if it ever happens. Awesome. Well, Nee Irwin, Statewide Resource Section Manager for the Washington State Department of Ecology. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks, Dan. Glad to have been here. Well, a big thank you to the Washington State Department of Ecology for continuing to support the Tactics Meeting podcast and come on the show with such good information. Volunteers is a large, fairly complicated topic, and we could have workshops and go on and on but i think what we did today was really helpful if you like the show and you'd like to be a guest or have some topics that you think that we should cover you can email me the address is podcast at the tactics meeting dot online thanks for joining us until next time